When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are so fortunate to get the guests that we get here on the Retire Sooner podcast. But today, this is especially exciting. Mitch Album, who I've read since I've been a kid. He's the author of Tuesdays with Maury. Everyone knows the book. Everyone knows Mitch Album. It's an absolute American classic that chronicles the time he spent with Maury Schwartz, a former college professor who was dying of ALS. Originally written as a labor just of love to help pay Maury's medical bills, Tuesdays with Maury, the book, spent four years on New York Times bestseller list. And it's now the most successful memoir ever published. Nearly everything that Mitch writes makes it onto the bestseller list. And four of his works have been turned into successful TV movies. He's also a songwriter, a lyricist, an award-winning journalist and radio host. He even appears regularly on ESPN Sports Center. I think I want to be Mitch Album when I grow up. Let's see if he'll tell me how to make that happen. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Mitch Album, you've sold more books than pretty much any guest there is to be out there. Well, I don't know. You could have had... uh... Stephen King on, or <laughs> isn't he in your band? By Rich, the way, yeah, he's in our band. Yeah, but still, <laughs> sold more books than the rest of the band combined. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, so very often in interviews, people do lightning rounds at the end, and I'm going to do lightning round in the beginning. It's almost like a get to know Mitch album because we all know you for your books. We know Tuesdays with Maury. We know uh, five people you meet in heaven, etc. And you've sold so many of these books. Um, and, and you, and you have such amazing lessons of life, both life and, and death, right? You've talked about both and then living without regret, but I want to start our audience by asking you, I have seven quick questions to get to know Mitch. Okay. Uh, my, my first one is what is it, what is your favorite song to sing? My favorite song to sing is, uh, probably... An Elvis Presley song, uh, because I I do these Elvis Presley impersonations in the band, and uh, whenever you can sing like that, you know you you in the shower, you always do. But I'm not going to do it for you now. But so, do you have a particular Elvis song that is number one in your heart that you like to sing? Uh, yeah, there's a uh, uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky. I don't Ooh, know if you cool. know that song, but that was an early Elvis song where. You hear all the parts of Elvis in his voice, you know, the deep, deep, deep part and the high, that part and all that. So uh, I, I practice my little vocal gymnastics in the shower on that song. 
All right, so then I'm going to go right to your favorite instrument. Piano. There's one right behind me here, and I was a musician before I was a writer, and so uh, that was always my first love. And piano is my main instrument. I can play a bunch of others, but that's that's the thing I do best. Yeah, what is your second... Uh, I've, I found some clips, really cool cl- clips of you playing piano. But what's play your second guitar, favorite? I can play drums, I can play bass, I can play, you know, a little bit of uh, some other instruments, but... Keyboards and piano are my are my main thing. All right. So your favorite core, what we call core pursuit, a core pursuit in our parlance is a, a hobby on steroids, something you live for. Oh, music. Yeah, no question. I mean, yeah, I play okay. music all the time. I play in a band. Uh, I, I, I down in Haiti where I have an orphanage that I'm at every month. Uh, I've, I've, I've developed three bands with our kids. So I've got a teenage boys band, a teenage girls band, and a middle band. And I think I'm more into it than they are. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Wait, so what do they play? By the way, what do they, uh, so do you have any access to any instrument down there? So you guys keyboards oh, yeah. and everything or no? Over 12 years that I've been there, you know, every month I'll bring down a little something else. And we've now got, and other people have donated things. And we have a full music program. So we've got keyboards, drums. Basses, guitars, violins, violas, flutes, recorders, you name it, uh, accordions, uh, anything you can fit in a, in a bag, we've brought down piece by piece or, or whole. And so uh, our kids love music. They're quite good at playing. And uh, of course, sadly, uh, they don't play anything past 1970 because uh, I'm, their in, I'm their influence. Oh, it's your fault. And, it's your fault. Yeah, <laughs> my fault, yeah. But they, they do an amazing job of playing 50s and 60s rock and roll considering they're 10 and 12 and 14 years old and never heard any of those songs before but uh but i teach them and we have a lot of fun doing it Mm, that is awesome uh the what about favorite go to favorite i was gonna say the favorite book but because you're an author your favorite book that you've written that i've written yeah oh uh boy i i think the the best book that I've written is Finding Chica, which was about our little girl. Uh, your da- the daughter you, you uh, adopted from yeah, Haiti, correct? passed yeah. away from a brain tumor, but so I think sorry. that's the best writing uh, that I've ever done. Uh, in terms of like book that I would just sit and read for myself, uh, if I were the kind of person who read his own books, uh, probably The Five People You Meet in Heaven. I, I, I always love that story, and I love the characters, and the main character Eddie is based on a an old uncle of mine, even though it's a novel. Uh, and so every time I read about him, I always picture my uncle uh, and the way he talked like this. And I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. Never did nothing. And Eddie talks like that in the book. So that one's probably my uh, kind of personal favorite. I know everybody expects me to say Tuesdays with Maury, but I sort of live Tuesdays with Maury. You know, it's part of my literally part of my daily existence. So. Um, if it were a book, I kind of don't need to go down and sit that and read that one again because you've already lived, you yeah, already lived it. The f- and, and then I, I think I was going to start with asking about Tuesdays with Maury, but I'm going to start instead with the five uh, people you meet in heaven. So, uh, almost done relating round the, uh, favorite place that you've traveled in Michigan. Favorite place that I've traveled in Michigan. Uh, man, I've been all over Michigan. Um, I, I would say, uh, 
I went to, I mean, I could pick all the obvious ones that are fun, the Ann Arbors and the Traverse Cities and all that. But I went to a little town called Coldwater, Michigan, because I set one of my books in a fictional town called Coldwater, Michigan, only to find out that there was a real town called Coldwater, Michigan. And they, they said, well, you have to come out here. So I did a book signing there. And it was such a cool little town. And the whole town came out, you know, and uh, and uh, everybody was peppering me with questions about how'd you pick us. And I said, I didn't, I didn't even know you existed, but but uh, now I do. And and it was just, just a typical Michigan small town that's that's so endemic of what's wonderful about this state that I live in and the small towns that make up, you know, the state. So maybe I'll pick that one. So Coldwater, Michigan, I'm, I'm Google mapping it as you, as you speak of it. So it's kind of middle Southern, middle Southern Michigan. Okay. That's where I am right now in Detroit. Yeah. Near Detroit. Okay. I love it. <laughs> So you was, was the, was the, was Coldwater, Michigan. I've never been there. Is it, was it similar to the, how you said it in the book or is totally nothing Not to do? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. You know, the whole small town nature of it. I, I had in my mind put it a little further North and closer to the water, but um, yeah, you know, in terms of the mentality and the churches and the folks all knowing each other. Yeah, it was a little bit just like I imagined it. By the way, I ask people what your favorite place is in Michigan, even if you're not from Michigan. I know oh, you really? are, obviously, because it tells me that they've never been to, to the Midwest. And yeah. it tells me that it always reinforces the idea that I think Michigan is the most underrated place in America. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm a big I'm a big fan of Michigan. I've married uh, my wife is from there, so we started going there tw- almost 20 years ago, and we keep going back. So I I, I just I'm, I'm a huge huge believer and love it. And then lastly, favorite place in the whole world to go? Uh, New Zealand. Oh, I've, I've never been there uh, many 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 times, and uh, there it's I think it's really the most beautiful place on earth. Uh, I was once one place that was prettier called the Cook Islands uh, and a little island called Rarotonga uh, and Aitutaki. But that's so obscure that I don't know that anybody would ever get there. Uh, But I remember seeing colors there that I'd never seen anywhere else in the world, you know, not even in crayon boxes, you know, and and these were trees and birds and things like that. But but New Zealand is just such a cool place and it's such a beautiful place and the people are fun and easy going and it's like going back in time 56 is it are the cook islands are they off of australia are they in the uh, southern they're, hemisphere they're, where are they new zealand they're north of new zealand up towards fiji if you go from new zealand and try to get like uh towards fiji you'll hit the cook islands is banawatu part of that chain no. i'm trying to remember banawatu is a, a separate island yeah okay. that's where everybody goes to hide their money Oh, Vanuatu. Oh, is that what it is? It, what is it like the Isle of Man, but for the South, Southern yeah, Hemisphere? Tax, it's a big tax haven, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the, I, I didn't know that, but it's, per, it's perfect information for retire sooner crowds. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so if you can get to that part of the world. I only know Vanuatu because a good friend of mine in college did a did a semester abroad at Vanuatu, and we were always like, "Where? What are you? Where are you going? What?" It's pretty. It's pretty much water, 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 land mass, water, 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 water. 
So here I am, I am talking about my geography that I don't know very well, and with the author of, of, of who, who sold like something like I don't know forty million books, forty seven different countries, uh, and and Mitch album. Can you maybe go to? You'd mentioned that one of your favorite books, or your favorite book, is the Five People You Meet in Heaven, and and it's because it's based on. So you're saying Eddie, who is based on someone that was from your family, but not an actual. It was not an actual person, right? Well, so yeah, the so the story of the Five People You Meet in Heaven is about this old man named Eddie, who dies in the opening pages. He's 83 years old, and he's a maintenance man at an amusement park. And he's one of these guys that just doesn't think he amounts to anything in his life. He's a nothing, a nobody. He never went anywhere in his life unless he was drafted in the army to go. And uh, he dies saving a little girl from an accident. He goes to push her out of the way from a falling cart. And uh, he feels his two little hands, her two little hands in his hands. And then the world goes black. So he doesn't know if he saved her or not. And he wakes up in heaven and finds out that the first stage of heaven is where you meet five people from your life, some of whom you may have known very well, but some of whom you may have only encountered for a minute, and yet in some way you change their life forever and they change yours. And as he progresses through the these five people, he keeps asking, did I save the little girl? Did I save the little girl? And nobody can answer him and uh, until the last person, and I don't want to give it away, but, but uh, meanwhile he finds out by the end that this nothing life that he thought he led because he was a maintenance man actually affected all kinds of people in so many ways. And the people that he affected then affected other people and other people and other people. So that idea of a, of a ripple in a pond, you know, that you, the stone that you throw out there mm -hmm. just keeps rippling and rippling and rippling. And, and there's no, the, the, the takeaway is there's no such thing as a nobody there. There isn't anybody who doesn't touch somebody and doesn't affect the world in some way. Uh, and, I always wanted that from my uncle because he, as I say, was a guy who said, I never been nowhere. I never done nothing, you know, and, and uh, I can never convince him that he was special, you know, but he did tell me one time that he died on an operating table technically for a few seconds. And that's where the idea of the book came from, because he would always tell us at Thanksgiving, this story about how he died and he remembered that he began to float out of his body and he lifted up above his body up on the operating table and he was looking down and he saw all of his dead relatives were waiting for him at the edge of the bed. So, of course, as a little kid, you would say, you know, what'd you do? What'd you do? And being the salty World War II vet that he was, he said, what I do? I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for any of you yet. <laughs> what, what, an ama what an amazing uh, story over the Thanksgiving yeah. table. Yes. So we are always in this battle uh, Mitch, where we, in particularly our audience that is trying to, you know, there's the fire movement. You've probably heard about the financial independence, retire early. And these are people that want to stop working when they're 30 so they can live life. And then of course you and I know many people that worked forever and they, we've worked almost until you know, we died and we are doing something we didn't maybe love. And there's, and we're always trying to find the right balance between those two extremes, right? It's how do we live life, but also be able to afford life uh, be, be, and live without regret. And I think that I just maybe like your perspective on that is that we lean towards this financial thought that we've got to have enough money to be able to kind of stop working or maybe not be in a job that we don't love. And in America, kind of, I think it's kind of a sad 
statistic that only one in five people really, really love what they they do. The other, you know, one in five hate the job so much trying to bring their own co- their company down. They'd like to see it fail. And three out of five are kind of like, ah, oh, take it or leave it. So what is that balance, do you think, about a, a life with without live a, living a life without regrets? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've been very blessed to have had a real education in this. Uh, when I got to sit alongside my old college professor, Maury Schwartz, who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And Maury had always been a very insightful guy anyhow in his life. But now here he knew he was going to die. And, you know, the clock was ticking. And he was able to teach me every Tuesday, this matters, this doesn't matter. You think this matters, when, but when you get to where I am, it's not going to matter. And much of what we talked about was exactly what you're asking me about, about regret and about, you know, how do you reach the point in your life where when you're ready to die, you don't have regret. And number one, I mean, there's many answers to this. So number one, uh, as Maury suggested, put a bird on your shoulder every day and turn to this little imaginary bird and say every morning, is today the day I die? And be prepared, of course, that the bird is going to say no every day of your life but one. But on the day that the bird says yes, are you going to be able to say, well, that's okay. I have no regrets. Or are you going to say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 it can't be today. I've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this, tick all this stuff off. So the takeaway is you have got need to live your life as if that bird's going to say yes today and not keep putting things off for tomorrow. That's number one. Number two, I'm old enough now to see the folly and foolishness of thinking that all I got to do is quit work and I will be happy with my life. So the sooner I can quit work, the happier I'm going to be with my life. I know plenty of people who don't work who are miserable. Mm. I know plenty of people who have a ton of money and not an ounce of happiness. Mm. Uh, It is not the work that makes you unhappy. It's being unfulfilled in your work that makes you unhappy. It's not the leisure that makes you happy. It's finding meaning in the leisure that makes you happy. And so people need to lose that notion of all I got to do is, 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 is get X amount of money in the bank and quit, and then I'll be happy. There's a, there's a concept in economics. I, many, many years ago, I got an MBA. God knows why. It, it's never helped me. But there's a concept <laughs> in economics called marginal propensity. You know what it, that means? Marginal propensity to save, marginal propensity to spend. And it means like, what would you do with your next dollar? What's your pattern, essentially? No matter how much or how many dollars you have, how much of that dollar do you always spend? And I always feel that there's a marginal propensity to happiness in people's lives, too. I've never never thought of it. I've I've talked about diminishing marginal happiness per new dollar. But tell me about this concept. Yeah, tell me about this. Marginal propensity to save or to earn is what the next dollar, what, you know, if you're the person who, no matter if you have a hundred dollars, you spend 70 of it. If you have a million, you spend 700,000 of it. Your marginal propensity to spend is 70% because that's who you are. The marginal propensity for happiness is what, if you are put in a situation where you have a job that may not be the world's most interesting job, but you find ways to make it interesting, 
find ways to connect with your coworkers, find ways to make it fulfilling so that 80% of your time you're happy, then chances are when you retire and go into a leisure situation, you'll find interesting things to do and interesting things, people to meet and 80% of the time, if not more, you'll also be happy. But if you're the kind of person who goes from job to job and, and, and you're just miserable and you, and yeah, I hate this boss and I hate this coworker, I hate the hours, I hate the, chances are when you're not working, you're probably going to be miserable too, because it's not the work. It's what you are inside you, what your marginal propensity towards happiness is. And so, you know, if you, this is a trick that, if you find the clue to this, it doesn't matter when you stop working because stopping working isn't your key to happiness. Your key to happiness is inside you. It's really your marginal propensity to find happiness no matter what you're doing. And meaning. And in meaning. And meaning. Through meaning is happiness. And I, I at, 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 the, at the risk of adding one more thing, because I don't mean to talk all the time here, but it's- No, please, you're, we're interviewing you for God's sakes. They're not interviewing me. <laughs> um, I will tell you that I observed something happen with Maury that I think is very, very telling to your audience. Maury was dying. He was 78 years old. People would come to try to cheer him up all the time. Hmm. They would go into his room. The door would close. I would sit outside. They'd come out an hour later in tears, but they'd be crying about their love life, their job, their divorce, whatever it was. And they'd say, oh, I don't know what happened. I went in to try to cheer him up. You know, I have pictures and everything. But after about five or 10 minutes, you know, he started asking me questions. So I started answering. Then he started really asking me questions. Started answering. Then he started really asking me. The next thing I know, I was opening up and everything. And I went in to try to cheer him up, but he ended up sort of cheering me up. So I watched this happen so many times that finally I went into him and said, I don't get it. If ever anybody had finally earned the right to say, let's not talk about your problems, let's talk about my problems, it would be you. You're dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. You can't move. You're in a chair. You, somebody has to turn your head just to make you look at them. You know, they have to reach down your throat to pull phlegm up. You know, you have to wipe your rear end when you go to the bathroom. You don't need to be nice to other people. You should have people coming to you. And he, he looked at me and he said, Mitch, why would I ever do that? Why would I ever take from people like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Mm -hmm. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And it is a profound sentence. And it rhymes, so it's easy to remember. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And I have lived my life ever since that time with Maury, with that principle guiding me as often as I can. And I will tell you that in the 25 years since that has happened, I have never found a sentence to be more true than that. Giving makes you feel alive. And so if you're looking for a retirement that is going to be enjoyable, don't look at it as how many golf games you're going to play because people get sick of golf. And don't look at it how many card games because they get sick of cards and how many trips you're going to take because people get sick of trips and how many cruises you're going to take because people get sick of cruises. Giving makes you feel alive. And if you find ways in which to give to other people, you will never feel the need to retire. You will go right to your dying day feeling significant and feeling alive. And I have a beautiful life, you know, uh, an enviable life on many levels. I've earned a lot of money in my time. I live a comfortable life here in Michigan. I have a good house, a good neighborhood, a big screen TV, all that stuff. I will tell you that I never 
sleep better in my life than when I'm on a four inch mattress in, in 90 something degree heat down in an orphanage in Haiti where I am every month. And I sleep better there because I wake up to the sound of children outside my door saying, is Mr. Mitch awake? Is Mr. Mitch awake? You know, of course, of course I'm awake because they're screaming and knowing that I am needed there and knowing that I am bringing something to those kids. That sense of peace and, and giving allows me to sleep better than the 14-inch mattress and the foam pillow and the perfect temperature and all the rest of my very comfortable home. There must be something to be learned from that. Maybe there's no, it makes sense now, and the research that I've done for about a decade of uh, the kind of the traits of happy versus unhappy retirees, the number one core pursuit for the happy retiree camp is volunteering. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The world, as we all know, has changed so much and your financial situation has likely changed too. How you adapt to that change has a massive effect on your future. Maybe your mom or dad's health has declined. Maybe you recently had a baby or got a divorce or inherited some unexpected money and you aren't sure how to invest it. Maybe you're one of the 3 million people who reportedly retired early due to the pandemic. Or perhaps you didn't retire, but your company decided to softly push you out the door. It's happened so much at some of America's biggest companies, they've even come up with a new word for it, surplusing. As in there's a surplus of humans and you're one of them. As if downsizing wasn't bad enough. And if you're facing that change, should you take pension payments monthly or a lump sum, a rollover IRA or something else? You may also be stuck in a static portfolio with the outdated 60-40 stock bond ratio that assumed interest rates and inflation would never go up. We are in the middle of the largest financial shift that we have seen in more than 40 years. Tectonic plates are shifting. We've moved from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to higher interest rates. If you have questions about how to adapt to that or adjust to all these changes, just give us a call. Or better yet, find us at yourwealth.com. You can meet with a real live person in Atlanta or Tampa or Denver or Phoenix, or we can just do it over Zoom. I just had a great meeting with some wonderful folks from Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland, Ohio. If we can get to know each other over Zoom, so can you and I. So reach out to our team at Capital Investment Advisors, the website, yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, wealth.com. Mitch, since we're talking about this, this thought around marginal propensity for happiness, the thought that you kind of, you're going to be able to find a certain level of happiness almost in any situation. Is there a chance, and, and maybe it sounds like this has happened with you, but maybe you already had a high propensity for happiness. 
Is there something that people you've seen people do, Mitch? I think about the retirees that I work with that maybe they've just worked so much and they're not they're, they have a lower propensity right now to be happy. I'd love the thought of somebody that has the ability or that we would all have the ability to increase that. Meaning that you don't you know work isn't great and you haven't found a whole lot of purpose and you're in your 50s and your 60s. How do we improve that or turn it around for somebody where it's not working? Have you seen people do that? Is it as simple as finding the spark of your purpose? I'd love to get your thought on that. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's it's an easier thing to say, of course, as all mm. things are, than to do. Uh, but it begins with uh, having kind of a strategic approach to how you go about your day and how you go about your larger picture of what the days add up to for your year. So, for example, um, okay, you're at work. Uh, the work itself, you want to find significance in the work. Okay. If you can do that, I think people always feel better. Not everybody can find significant work. Sometimes people just have to take a job because it pays money and they got to pay the bills and they would love to, you know, be uh, curing cancer, but you know, they're, they're, they're sweeping up somewhere and whatever. Okay. First of all, eliminate the things that turn the experience negative. Don't get involved in gossip. Don't get involved in office politics. Have that as a philosophy no matter where you go. I don't talk about other people. I don't get into bitching about stuff. If I hear people bitching about stuff or it becomes a, you know, a complaint fest, I pick up a book or I put on a podcast or whatever and during my lunch break and I listen to that because I don't allow the negativity to get in. You can do that anywhere. You can do that in the worst job. You can do that in the best job. You know, Try to scratch out the stuff that becomes negative to you because that will change your marginal propensity to be happy because what what right now sounds like an instruction eventually becomes a habit, okay? You know, like I stopped eating red meat when I was 20-something years old because I heard it was bad for you. At first, it was weird because how can you go to McDonald's and not have a hamburger? Uh, you know, and I, I'd done that my whole life, you know, and now I'm in McDonald's and I'll have a ham. Oh, no, I can't have a hamburger. I guess I'll have the chicken thing, you know, but eventually over time it became who I was. Now I, the thought of eating red meat is, is not even never in my head. I can't remember what a steak tastes like or all the rest of that. Stuff. So it's gone. So I changed a pattern, you know, first you do it by just forcibly changing it, and then it becomes who you are. And you do the same things within your workplace to try to eliminate the things that make you unhappy, make you negative or depressed, miserable. And then once that becomes a habit with you, no matter where you go, you won't fall into those same traps. Because I got to tell you, having made movies, for example, in my life, I've, I've made a number, written a number, I've been on movie sets, everybody thinks, what could be more fun than being on a movie set? Well, there's there's few places where gossip is worse or bitching is worse, I can tell you, than on a movie set and people throwing tantrums and in their, and in their trailers. Why? You would think, well, what could be more fun than acting and making a movie? But people who are unhappy are unhappy wherever they go. People who gossip, gossip wherever they go. So it, it's not the environment. It's the habits that you kind of take from that. And that, I think, can improve your marginal propensity to be happy. You know, the, one of the questions I had here, and, and maybe I go back to your history, a couple questions. One, this thought around, I think you were frustrated uh, with gossip and tabloids early on in your career. And I wanted to ask about that. And then the thought around going and learning from M Maury and were you ready for that? Or that was just, 
it's almost as though you have the your your work could be you you could be a you could be a preacher. I mean, you could be you could have these could be sermons about what we could learn about life. Were you? Did you set out to do that, or did you have any idea you would end up being someone that almost would have this wonderful insight to humanity, or or, or did you always have a dream about that, or did, did how did that no, happen? No, no, and no. I mean, I wanted to be a musician, and that's all I ever wanted to be. And I never planned on writing, and I fell into writing by accident because I started volunteering for a local newspaper during the day just to have something to do when I was a musician at night. I didn't have anything to do during the day, so I volunteered a paper, and I found that I had some aptitude for it. And when music kind of went south for me, I just dove into the newspaper thing and and got better and better at it and ended up in journalism. I ended up in sports writing. I figured, okay, that's where I'll be the rest of my life. It's fun. I enjoy it. I could do it. And never planned on writing books like Tuesdays with Maury. And then one day out of the blue, happened to see my old college professor on TV uh, talking about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And felt so guilty that I hadn't seen him in 16 years. And he had been so close to me then that I called him up. It was going to be one phone call. Uh, he kind of convinced me to come visit him. I went to visit him. It was going to be one visit. He kind of convinced me to come back. I came back and back and back and back. But the big thing that changed in that, I mean, I kept coming back every Tuesday. But the thing that changed was he said to me at one point, um, I asked him what he was most afraid of with his dying, thinking he would tell me, you know, pain or something physical. And he said, I'm afraid of the debt that I'm going to leave my family because I've racked up so much debt with this disease over the last couple of years that I was going to have, I'm going to have to, I'm going to die twice. First, they're going to put me in the ground and then my family's going to have to sell the house to pay the bills and all that. I'm going to die again, knowing that I'm bankrupting them. And so it was only after hearing that, that I decided that maybe I could help him by writing a book. That was all I knew how to do to make money. And I went around to different publishers and, and, um, and, and tried to find somebody who would be interested in this story about an old man talking to a young man about what's important in life while he was dying. And do you know that almost every publisher I went to said, no way, not interested, boring, <laughs> depressing. You're depressing. Who wants to read a book like that? I mean, I was, yeah. I was chased out of more publishing houses. You're like, houses. oh, for 20. And you were already a well-established writer at the time, well, too. And, well, I was a best-selling uh, sports writer. Yeah, but they, yeah. They didn't think that a sports writer could write a book like that, and so I would have given up, to be honest, if it was for myself. If it was for myself, I would have said, "Geez, I've gone to ten places, and ten places have told me this is a bad idea. I, I got to drop this. This is a, this is a loser." But because I wasn't doing it for myself, and this goes back to giving is living, because I, I was only doing it to get money for his medical bills, I knew I couldn't give up. And so I kept pushing, found a place finally, only a few weeks before Maury died. They agreed to give us just enough money to pay his bills. I gave Maury all the money mm-hmm. and said, don't die a second time. And for me, you know, like that was kind of the end of the whole Tuesdays with Maury experience in a nutshell. Because I had finally learned to do something nice for this older man who had done so much nice for me. Until that point, I had just been about myself, my own ambition, my own career. I really hadn't done anything to speak of for anybody else. So I did this one thing for somebody else. And then I sat down to write the book and kind of because I think I wasn't thinking of it as my career, I kind of was writing it just based on him and I was going to go back to sports writing. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it very simply, very shortly, 
it came out, they printed 20,000 copies, and they thought that's, you know, that's more than they'll need for the rest of, I thought it'd be in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life, you know? And <laughs> then a funny thing happened. People began to read it, and somebody else read it and passed it on, and somebody else read it and passed it on, and they began to reprint and reprint and reprint, and now it's the biggest selling memoir in the history of publishing. And it was done as purely as an act of love and as a favor to an old man who had been kind to me. So the lesson of that is, you know, when you do things for the right reasons, they become their own reward. Sometimes they become literally a reward. I mean, that gave me a career. Uh, you know, I'm talking to you, I'm sure, because of, of that book and that moment, even though I've, I've published nine other books since then, but I never would have had the opportunity to do The Five People You Meet in Heaven or books like that if I hadn't written Tuesdays with Maury. And so when you do things for the right reasons, when you do things to give, they will somehow find their way to become their own reward. It just does. And it doesn't always happen the way that I just laid it out. But in some way, shape or form, there'll be similarities. Mitch, did, just logistically, was it was it was it all just chance that Ted Koppel was interviewing Maury because because of his ALS, did they go find someone, or was there something else? And there was was there another reason why they were in contact with him to begin with? Um, what had happened was he decided that he didn't want to die quietly. He wanted to teach about what it was like to die right up until the day he died, and he would have people come over to his house and he would talk about. Dying. Again, giving, giving, even as he was dying, giving. And somebody mentioned it to a reporter at the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe came out and like sat in one of his classes or whatever and wrote a story about this old professor who was teaching his last class and the subject mm. was his death. That story found its way down to Ted Koppel and a producer named Richard Harris. That producer said, hey, this looks pretty interesting. Maybe we should go talk to this guy. They called him up. They came up. They were going to do one episode. They ended up doing three. And they ended up being the most popular Nightline episodes of all the 20-plus years, whatever, that was on the air. And I happened to see it sitting in my house in Michigan, flipping Just the Just flipping through the channels. Flipping through the channels, and there wow. it was. So you tell me if that's not fate. That is divine. It is. You have so much... Uh, philanthropy of multiple charities you've spent you you've just said your some of your favorite you sleep the best when you're when you're giving in Haiti as an example tell me about Haiti what did, what have you learned and taken away from that experience po po post her post earthquake correct post hurricane earthquake yeah well i went down after the earthquake of 2010 just a few weeks after the earthquake happened we were able to sneak a little plane in there through a, con a senator that we knew and uh, what I saw there, would, I would, I'll never forget. I mean, it was death in the streets. It was mayhem that you just can't imagine. The whole, whole city in crumbles and shambles, people climbing on piles of rocks and pulling rocks out, trying to find bodies that were inside. The stench of, of, of bodies that had rotted, you know, underneath rocks that, you know, still hadn't been discovered yet. And, and yet the children were incredible. I mean, incredibly resilient, incredibly joyous. And, um, Eventually, I kept coming back to this orphanage, and we started rebuilding it. We built the first toilets there. We built the first showers there, the first kitchen. I bought all these guys from Detroit who all wanted to help out. And, of course, in Detroit, we do things with our hands, so it's not hard to find plumbers and contractors and roofers and all that. And, and they all came down with me. 23 guys came nine times 
uh, and built all this up. And, and, and over time, while we were there, the pastor who, was, who had been running the place, he was in his mid-80s and he didn't have any money and the kids were starving. And, and, and so in one of these weird moments that you look back on later in your life, I said to him, well, you know, I could, I guess I could operate the place if you want me to operate it. I mean, I run some charities in Detroit. How different could it be? And he basically said, you know, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Here it is. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I've been running it ever since. I mean, he's, he's passed away and long since gone. And, and so, uh, I have had to be the guy who sits across the table when people bring their children and to mm. listen to the stories of uh, of the poverty and the and the and the mayhem and the destruction and uh, you know of earthquakes and hurricanes and people who are literally living in holes in the ground you know when we went out to Jeremy after hurricane Matthew we found children who literally were living they they, they used the creole word under the house. And when they would talk to us at Creole, they said, well, I live under the house. And we would say, what do you mean under the house? Like, you live under the house. So we went and saw it. They, 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 they were literally true. There was a hole that they had dug in the mud and there was a piece of tin that was left over from the house, which used to be the roof. The rest of it had been destroyed. And they put the tin on top of the hole and they slept in the hole. So they slept under the house. And when you bring kids from environments like that, where if they eat one cup of rice a day, they're happy. They're searching for water all the time. Some kids uh, tell stories about how they would wear, get plastic bottles and, and, and those would be their shoes. And they would cut the plastic bottles in half and they put their feet inside of them. And their feet were always cut up from the edges of it when they would tie a string around it. And, and, and how if they went to the bathroom, it would just be a hole in the ground and they would have to take a rock at night and, and they would always bang the rocks on other rocks to chase the rats away so that you didn't get bitten on your rear end by a rat while you were sitting in the dark doing your business. So when you hear stories like that, and you bring children like that into a, a safe place, not a fancy place, but a safe place, safe place, and you see the gratitude of these children and the, how their attitudes change, and how they grow, and how they learn, and how they come to speak three languages, and how now we have kids that are going, they all have college scholarships waiting for them, every one. And we have eight already that are in American universities and all doing well and all getting fantastic grades. Our oldest one's about to go to medical school. And, wow. and, and these are kids who have had nothing. Now you realize the majesty of life, the amazing, amazing uh, results that you can get when you, when you put the ingredients of love and caring and attention into a, an empty bowl, you know, and change lives. So for me, I mean, it's, it's just the most significant thing I've ever been involved in and continue. How much does that have to do, Mitch, with faith? And is there, is there religion that is um, dominant in, in that part of the world? Or Yes, there, uh, very, very dominant. Haiti is a very religious country. It's about 80% Catholic and 20% voodoo. Uh, and the people who believe in voodoo believe in it quite strongly. None of our kids uh, do that or come from that background. I mean, they may come from the background, but it, they're, they're tiny little kids when they come to us. Um, but yes, every night, the one consistent activity that I can tell you that has never been missed in 12 years, going on 13, of being in Haiti is at 7 o'clock at night, our kids gather, whether there's a hailstorm, a hurricane, a rain, or whatever, they gather in this little gazebo and they pray. And they, and they say their prayers and they sing without any books. They don't need books. They know everything by heart. And they sing these songs joyously, pounding on drums and 
each one out trying to outscream the other one, and they're all songs of thanks to God. And mm. these are kids whose entire possessions fit inside a single 12 inch by 12 inch cubby. They have no iPhones, no computers, no television, no radio, no outside, you know, kind of influence. And and so I get a chance to see what childhood really looks like when it's not influenced by the media or anything like that. And I'll tell you what it looks like. It's innocent. It's open-minded. It's patient. I, I, I can have kids sitting and, and why I bought a, a thing one time where you put little pe uh, pellets into some water and then they're supposed to like grow into balls. And I didn't read the fine print that said could take two to three hours. So I put it in and we're all sitting around and I go, now watch, you know, it's going to be magic. You put this in. And we're sitting five minutes, 10 minutes, nothing happens. So I go back and read the box. Oh my God, two to three hours. I said, well, never mind. We'll come back later. Well, I left. They stayed there for two to three hours until, and finally a kid comes running up. Mr. Mitch, come down, come down, come down. The balls are getting bigger. It was almost three hours later and they just <laughs> sat and looked at it. Now you try to get an American kid. Yeah, no kidding. I have four little kids and never, I can't give them four minutes, three <laughs> right. minutes, let alone three hours. Right. Oh, so I get man. to see childhood in its purest form and it's a beautiful thing. Mitch, tell me about uh, as as we wrap up your your most recent book. I, I it came out last fall, Stranger in the Lifeboat. Again, it's number one in its category. I mean, I, I looked at all of your books; they're all number one, number one, number one. They just keep saying Tuesdays with Mario is twenty year. You wrote it twenty years ago, and it's still number one. It's amazing. Tell me about your most recent book, Stranger in the Lifeboat. So, Stranger in the Lifeboat uh, starts with this uh, luxury yacht that's out in the. Uh out on Atlantic off the coast of Africa and it, it's, it's full of all these really rich, famous people and it mysteriously blows up and everybody's killed except 10 survivors, five of whom are the rich guests and five of whom are members of the crew. And they get to a life raft and they're out on this life raft for three days and nobody's coming for them. Uh, and there's no planes, there's no boats, they're running out of food, they're running out of water, there's sharks. They're crying and crying out for help in every which way. And suddenly they just, they see this body floating in the water and they pull it in and it's a guy, he's alive. And he's a young guy, he's nondescript, very, very average looking, nothing special about him. And they ask him all kinds of questions he doesn't answer. And finally, one of the guests says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. Mm. And that sets the tale in motion of this parable of, uh, 10 people who are crying out for help. And then a guy comes along who says, well, you were crying out for help. Here I am. And of course they say, well, we don't believe you. You know, you're, you're, you can't be God. You look like an average guy. You get hungry, you're thirsty, you're all that. But strange things start to happen while they're out there. And uh, slowly, you know, some of them start to change their mind. And you have to sort of read the book to see what happens. But it's a parable about what happens when we call out for help and it doesn't come exactly the way we want it. You know, as human beings, you know, if we do believe in something, we sort of ask God, you know, make this happen. And we want it to happen like tomorrow morning. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow morning, then we think, ah, see, you know, I'm not having my prayers answered. But the truth is, if you think about how many times in your life you've said, well, you know, 10 years ago, this bad thing happened. And I really thought, I thought that was the end. But, you know, now I look back on it, if that hadn't happened, then this thing wouldn't happen. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have moved here. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have kids. I would have. So I guess in a certain way, it was kind of the best thing that could happen to me. 
Well, if 10 years from now it's the best thing that could have happened to you, then it is the best thing that could have happened to you now. It's just that we don't believe it because we don't trust God's plan. We don't trust the universe. We just want our we want our help right now. And this is a book about, you know, kind of learning the lesson of waiting to see if help might really be right in front of you, right in your nose or right in your boat. I feel like maybe that's what today's interview was help right in front, right under our nose with Mitch album. Um, it's, it's amazing. I was talking to our team today about just, it's, it's, we, we talk about wanting to produce interesting content. We have a channel in one of our teams chat. We call it radio, uh, radio gold, because we're always just looking for interesting, something compelling. And I feel like you don't know how to do anything except compelling. And, and one of our producers here, Jeff Lloyd, today was asking, he's like, he goes, every single thing he does is just awesome. What is he just, it's, he, so I don't know what that is. Maybe that is God's plan for you just to only have amazing stuff. <laughs> well, you're very kind and, and, you're, and you're clearly demented in a certain <laughs> way uh, to, uh, to come up with that kind of uh, conclusion about me. But uh, I'm happy to be a conduit for other people's messages and other people's good messages and for children, most especially as I get older, adults make less and less sense to me, but children make more and more. And, uh, I'm very happy to be spending my, my final third of life, um, in the company of children. And, um, you know, I hope other people do the same because there are so many kids in the world that, that need our help. Well, Mitch Album, thank you so, God bless you. And thank you for being here on the Retire Sooner podcast. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, it's very powerful to speak with you. Uh, and, and the way you deliver such a powerful message is kind of amazing. And we're just thankful to have you here on the show. So, so God bless well, you. And I wish you continued success. Continue to sell some books. <laughs> well, I'm not so worried about selling books, but if anybody wants to help us with our orphanage, we can always use help with volunteers or, or financial support. It's called the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage or havefaithhaiti.org on the web. And, and uh, more so than books, uh, we can use help there and they can, the kids can use help. And thanks for having me on your program. It's a really interesting idea. Uh, the whole conceit of the show is really interesting to me. And, and I hope uh, people do find a way to, uh, to retire happily and with meaning uh, as a result of your program. Well, we'll send you a copy of uh, What the Happiest Retirees Know. And, and again, for our audience, havefaithhaiti.org is uh, Mitch's charity uh, that helps the children that he's talked about here today on this episode. So God bless you, Mitch. Thanks for being Thank here, man. You. God bless you, too. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.